From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Election Day is exactly one week from today in Denver. Two people are vying to be the next mayor of Colorado's capital city. We'll hear what they have to say about equity and policing. We know you can't feel at home in a city where you don't feel safe. I want back a real version of community-based policing. My commitment is to focus on increasing our mental health professionals so we free our officers up to be at the issues we most critically need them to be at. Then, as the Colorado River faces an uncertain future, we turn to Las Vegas, the city known for excess has emerged as a leader in water conservation. There's a lot of bets and gambles going on here, but the House this time is saying, okay, we have to win this one. We have to win the gamble with water. My gift to CPR was matched by my employer. We support CPR with a business reporting grant. I'm a network partner and a member of the Legacy Circle. I support Colorado Public Radio by giving stock. Our foundation proudly supports CPR's efforts. We will distribute residual assets tax-free to CPR. My husband and I are Colorado Public Radio leadership partners. Explore all ways to give and make your gift on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Denver's mayoral runoff election is one week from today. Voters will choose either Kelly Bruff or Mike Johnston. Denverite and CPR News recently partnered with Denver 7 and the Denver Post for a debate with both candidates. We're going to share some of that with you now as the candidates shared their perspectives on equity and policing. Both had 60 seconds to answer their question. The moderators are Denver 7 anchor Ann Hill, Denver Post government reporter Joe Rubino, and Denverite neighborhood reporter Desiree Matherin, who you'll hear first. This question comes from Servicios de la Raza. How do you intend to increase resources for community-led initiatives by community-based organizations of color? Mike, why don't you begin? Uh, thank you. Yeah, I've been proud to partner with Servicios de la Raza in the past, and um, Proud to have the support of Nita and Rudy who are working so hard to make that happen there. Uh, what we know is that the city can't solve all these problems on their own. And the only way we get big problems solved is by actually being able to partner with nonprofits who have the most expertise, they're the closest to the problem, and they have the relationships that are able to deliver really transformational results in our neighborhoods. So the way I would approach it is to say, what's the big problem we're trying to solve? Whether that's homelessness, whether that's mental health support, whether that's affordable housing, and then who are the community leaders that are closest to that problem? Who are the ones that have real insight into what's working and what's not? How do we get them at the table to help us design the solution? And then have them at the table to help us decide how to deliver the services and the programs that people need and how to make sure we can put the best programs and the best people uh, connected to those services so that we know, sure, that we know people are getting uh, services from community members they know and trust that are delivering real results uh, on the taxpayer dollars that we're using. Thank you. Kelly. I will absolutely engage our community uh, and our diverse community partners in this work. And I'll give you an example of how I've done it in my history. Uh, when I was CEO of the Chamber of Commerce in 2018, we set out uh, to address the inequities we saw in our economy around race and gender. And what we did is engage exactly these community partners to identify the most critical issues, but more importantly, the strategies and the approaches to remove barriers so we could address home ownership in our region and address the fact that people of color are less likely to own a home, to address the income inequities that we see for gender and race, 
and to address um, uh, even uh, educational uh, attainment. When we did the work that way, what we found uh, is our community partners could identify the barriers and we were way more successful at removing those barriers and addressing the issue. I'd do the same thing as your mayor, partner with our community so we can get the issues right and get the strategies right and make progress. Thank you. We're going to move on to policing and public safety. And our first question comes from former mayoral candidate Andy Rougeau, who placed fourth in the April election. Denver saw almost a tripling of murders in the past 10 years. We're one of the car theft capitals of the country. However, both you, Mike, and you, Kelly, have said you're unsure or unwilling to increase police funding. Will you commit to increasing funding for police and increasing the number of police officers above our budgeted strength? And Kelly, we'll let you go first. My focus on this is we have an authorized strength of 1,600 today, and we're about 150 officers still short. Uh, I attended the academy graduation of 37. Uh, this was about a month ago. And I've met with the new academy class, which has about 57 officers in it. Uh, we're building, uh, but I'm going to guess we're still going to be about 100 short even with that. My commitment is to hit the 1,600 and to focus on increasing our mental health professionals, our star responders, so we free our officers up to be at the issues we most critically need them to be at. By doing that, I think we can address both of the issues. To your point, Andy, of making sure we respond and can address the community safety issues from a police perspective, but also serve our community on the mental health issues that they need us on today. Thank you, Mike. Thanks. Yeah, we know you can't feel at home in a city where you don't feel safe. If you ever had the experience of walking out the front of your house to your car being stolen or coming home to your house being robbed or having to sit at your kitchen table and talk to your kids about their fears of school shootings, you know how real that is. Uh, and so I do believe to take this on, it's going to require more officers and more first responders. That's why I've committed to putting 200 more first responders onto the street. That would include both officers, would include mental health workers, and would include uh, paramedics and EMTs. But it also means deploying them to a different kind of job. It means recruiting those people from the communities that they serve, so they represent the neighborhoods that they're going to serve. It means training them differently to have them be able to be expert in how to build relationships and de-escalate conflict. And it means deploying them to a different type of job. I want back a real version of community-based policing, where you have officers that are walking neighborhoods, they're visible, they're talking to neighbors, they're giving you their business cards, you can see them and ask them a question, and they can do what I did as a school principal, which is be out in the hallways to stop bad decisions before they happen. Thank you both. Let's go to Desiree now with our next question. This question comes from Reverend Ben Sanders from New Hope Baptist Church. He asks, what policies would you enact to help create a system that holds bad police officers accountable? Mike, you can go first. I do think a really important part of this is accountability. You know, I say there are certain professions where we expect incredibly high levels of execution. You don't go to DIA and get on an airplane and say, oh, it's great, this airline has 70% of their pilots are pretty good but the other 30% continue to crash. When you have high levels of public safety involved in something like a police officer, we should expect high levels of accountability. And this is a place where Kelly and I have different opinions. Uh, I supported the legislation that put in place officer accountability, including meaning if someone violated someone's constitutional rights the way that the folks did that killed George Floyd, they could be accountable and civilly liable. I want to keep that accountability in place. I don't think we should go back on it. Uh, and I want to make sure we both recruit a well-prepared and trained force, but also that we hold people accountable to the highest standards. Because when you have that public trust, you have to make sure you deliver on it. I think we should expect that of every officer. And Kelly? Yeah, let me first say, Mike, that's a misrepresentation. I do support that legislation. 
Um, and to the question, uh, let me focus on, I've been endorsed by the almost 1,500 police officers who serve our city every single day and by the Greater Denver Ministerial Alliance representing over 40 black churches. I appreciate this question because I think this is exactly what the next mayor has to do, is bring our community together to address these kinds of issues where we prove we're capable of holding our officers accountable and at the same time supporting them. And there is no relationship in our life where both of those things don't have to be true. I would use the Office of the Independent Monitor to help do this work, which is already in place and established. We also have a director of the Department of Safety who's a civilian who oversees some of this work. But just as importantly to me is, I'll focus on changing our police department and the culture, becoming more transparent so we can gain trust with community and also ensure we're getting constant feedback to improve our service. All right, Joe has our last question on this topic. You both have discussed that by the time a crime happens, the mayor has already failed their constituents. What would be your focus when it comes to crime prevention and how can a mayor effectively prevent crime? Kelly? Thanks, Joe. Uh, this is a space that comes from some experience when I was John Hickenlooper's chief of staff when he was mayor. And the chief of police came to me one May with concerns about we were seeing a rise in violence among our youth. And instead of simply adding officers, what we did is for the first time in Denver's history, we opened our rec centers for free. And what we saw that summer is we saw both our kids as victims of crime, but also committing crime, both went down. To this day, uh, our rec centers are free. What you'll see is every single member of my cabinet focus on what they control in terms of the drivers of crime. And we know what they are, stable housing. So we'll focus on making sure our families are in stable housing. We'll focus on access to economic opportunity through our Department of Economic Development. We'll focus on making sure our kids have recreational opportunities, are forming relationship with peers and adults. We'll focus on supporting Denver Public Schools to deliver the education that gives our kids hope and a possible future. Those are the things that will reduce crime in our city. Thank you, Mike. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's important. Uh, this topic is about three things. It's about prevention, it's about intervention, uh, and it's about safety. The prevention steps are the best way to keep a 17-year-old from getting his hands on a gun is make sure that that child, when he's 12, gets his hand on a passion, a sense of purpose, a sense of commitment, the thing that gets you up in the morning, keeps you in positive peer groups. And for me, that's why I would support expanding a program we uh, established that would allow kids to get access to after school and summer school programming in areas of their passion, whether it's arts, whether it's athletics, whether it's science, whether it's math, that's critical. Second is when we know that there is a 13 or 14 or 15 year old or any person who's made some initial bad decisions and is getting into the criminal justice system, that's when you have to really provide wraparound intervention. Therapy, counseling, support, intervention. For many of the school-based violence we've seen, we had early indications those young people were at risk. We didn't get them the intervention that they need. And third is we have to put people in the settings where they're most likely to be safe. Uh, that may mean alternative schools or alternative settings for young people and intervention and probation for, for uh, adults. That was Denver mayoral candidates Mike Johnston and Kelly Bruff at a debate held last Tuesday. It was produced by Denverite, CPR News, Denver 7, and the Denver Post. Hear the entire debate at CPR.org and Denverite.com. That's where you may also read the profiles of both candidates. Ballots in the runoff election are due by 7 p.m. on Tuesday, June 6th. Yep, exactly one week away. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. After World War II, France gave Colorado a gift, a train car. Colorado lost it. My guess is that it is repurposed somewhere. 
It could be a chicken coop, could be a shed on somebody's property, could be even buried. The moving and mysterious story of the Merci train car. Read this installment of Colorado Wonders and see a picture of the boxcar at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. Las Vegas is known as a city of excess, so it might be surprising to learn it's also a world leader in terms of water conservation. It's a critical issue as the Colorado River faces an uncertain future. 40 million people depend on it for water in the West, but overuse, drought, and climate change continue to take a toll. You hear more about that today on Parched, CPR's podcast about the river in crisis and the search for solutions. Here's host Michael Elizabeth Sackis. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Big Elvis Show. Well, how you doing in Las Vegas? The piano bar in this Las Vegas Strip casino is packed with people from all over the world. They're singing and dancing along with an Elvis impersonator. His real name is Pete Valley. Ladies, come on over here. Give us your name, where you're from. Alicia, and I'm from Lubbock, Texas. She's from Lubbock. And I'm Anna, and I'm from Lubbock, Texas. Or two Lubbock Texans, we love it. So let's get this show on the road, baby. Let's do it. Pete's not just known as Elvis. He's Big Elvis. That's because he's a big guy once he weighed over 900 pounds. He's channeling Elvis's glitzy, over-the-top Vegas era with bushy sideburns, purple-tinted glasses, and a silky outfit. Pete's been performing songs like Viva Las Vegas on the Strip for 25 years. In the uh, talent contest like Elvis in high school, everybody screamed and yelled, and, you know, I knew right away, I was like, I got to do this. So Pete's mom brought him to Nevada when he was 15. He was drawn to this desert oasis, a city awash in sparkling lights, palm trees, big fountains, and pools. Well, I remember as a young boy, when I moved here, water was abundant. I mean, I remember the fountains at Caesars. 24-7 going off. I mean, it was just, you know, so much water. Everything was water, but it was unlimited water, so nobody thought about it. Las Vegas is in the Mojave Desert, the driest desert in the country. So this city feels like a mirage, like an optical illusion sprung up from the vast blackness of the undeveloped desert landscape surrounding it. Las Vegas, as we know it, shouldn't exist. And it's hard to believe that it does. This mirage, this illusion people flock to, to let loose and play hard, is built on Colorado River water. It wouldn't be here without it. It is a desert, but we're, a lot of this world isn't all on the coast and it's not all in the perfect spot. I think this is a playground for America. You know, and it should continue to be, always. But in the backyard of America's playground is Lake Mead. It's the country's largest reservoir, and it's going dry. Without it, 
the Las Vegas fantasy turns back to dust. So the city has to figure out how to play it safe with just one thing, and that's water. Vegas is excess. Everything from food to gambling to whatever, nightlife, it's all excess. So they figure we're doing everything in excess, including wasting water. But that is just not certainly the case here, right? We're, we're not wasting water. As a matter of fact, we're, we're, we're on top of it. And that's why we're in Las Vegas. We're here to learn how and why this desert fantasy land wants to be the shining example of a city that can use less Colorado River water. From CPR News, this is Parched, a podcast about people who rely on the river that shaped the West and have ideas to save it. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis. On this episode, I want to learn what Nevada is doing to cut down on guzzling water and why other states might follow their lead So, to start, I went on the hunt for the state's most wanted water nemesis, thirsty grass lawns. This early in the morning, the warm rays of the rising desert sun are slowly starting to light up the sky over these houses. You might not think of suburban neighborhoods when you imagine Las Vegas, but more than two million people live in the county, which despite being in the desert, has homes with emerald lawns gleaming with sprinkler water. This home has a very nice lawn, a lot more grass in this neighborhood, but again, pretty small lawns. So just kind of like squares of grass framed by a lot of rocks and deserty bushes and trees. I'm driving behind a cop car or what looks like a cop car. The vehicle has a badge on the side, and instead of the common police slogan, to protect and serve, it says to protect and conserve. The car is white with blue cartoon-like waves. At the top is a bar of flashing lights. We're out here patrolling for water bandits. We are taking a left on a street called Beach Walk. Oh wow, they just turned the patrol lights on as they entered this neighborhood. This is the Las Vegas Valley Water District's Water Waste Investigation Unit. And they're out here early in the morning to try and catch people wet-handed. I promise I didn't make that up. That's a slogan they use. Okay, the patrol car is pulling over again. We see some sprinklers on the left. We're gonna jump out of the car and take a look and see if there's any leaks, if anything is flowing out onto the sidewalk, if they're allowed to be watering right now, and if any of that water flows into the road. Cameron Donnarumma gets out of the patrol car. He's a skinny guy in his early 30s with a serious face. He's wearing a yellow fluorescent safety vest, and there's a badge stitched on the front of his shirt that says Water Patrol. He's pulled out his phone and is filming sprinklers watering a small patch of grass. Water is running off the grass and into the street. There is no contributing flow upstream. 
There also appears to be a broken sprinkler in the front yard of this property. Okay, so tell me what you were just doing there. As we were patrolling the area, we noticed that this irrigation was running and water was leaving the property heading down the street. So that is considered a uh, violation according to the Las Vegas Valley Water District. I also did cite that broken sprinkler, the one that's kind of still squirting out. This broken sprinkler shooting water out onto the street is a satisfying find for Cameron, but a big problem for Las Vegas. Actually, it's a big problem throughout the Colorado River Basin. Watering lawns in Phoenix, Denver, Los Angeles, just to name a few, is a big way cities use their Colorado River supply. About 60% of Nevada's entire Colorado River budget goes outdoors to things like keeping trees, gardens, and grass alive. So that's why Cameron has this job, a water waste investigator. He says he mostly gives out warnings, but today he's giving these homeowners a fine because they're repeat offenders. They've been caught wet-handed before. So Cameron writes out a ticket, hangs it on the garage door, and puts a flag in the grass where the broken sprinkler is. What kind of fine are they looking at? Uh, most single-family homes, the first fine starts at $80. If we return and we notice that the violation has not been corrected, that $80 fine will become $160, it doubles, and so on. It will keep doubling until the issue is corrected. This is how big a deal it is in Southern Nevada to waste water on suburban lawns. There are water waste investigators handing out tickets for broken sprinklers. That can be hundreds of dollars. With the drought, the state's share of the Colorado River is shrinking and every drop counts. Cameron has lived in Las Vegas most of his life. And he says this job makes him feel like he's making a difference for his community. He's helping to save what he calls its most precious resource. It's water. It's on my mind a lot, actually, even on my days off when I walk past and I'm like, hey, those guys aren't supposed to be watering today. And when Cameron sees water being wasted, even when he's off the clock, he'll report it. My supervisor does joke like, oh, I saw your name again on the reports. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, I submit things. and I, I, I encourage my friends and family to do it, too, for sure. So. I'd love to talk about your patrol car. Yes. It feels like you want people to see you. Exactly, yeah, that's the point. Is It's very flashy. Uh, we have the amber lights on top. Some people confuse this for, you know, like law enforcement. Um, the idea is to catch people's attention. We take that opportunity to educate them. This is very necessary. This is important. With climate change, with lake need lowering, you know, this is, this is necessary. When maybe someone doesn't understand the severity of the situation when it comes to Colorado River water resources here in Nevada and Las Vegas, what do you tell them to help them understand why conserving so important. It's kind of surprising. A lot of people here don't actually realize how much, you know, water irrigation uses. And a lot of people tell me, oh, I take fast showers and, you know, I'm, I, I save a lot of water indoors. And I say, that's great. Keep up what you're doing. But at the same time, the outdoor irrigation is the main focus here. Once it goes down the street and evaporates, you know, that's water that's lost forever. Policing water usage is one of the steps Vegas is taking to make up for the decades when it encouraged people to come here without worrying about running out of water. Dotting the desert with lush, East Coast-style lawns meant the American dream was alive out West. 
In Las Vegas, developers built neighborhoods to sell people the desert oasis fantasy, where it's hot and sunny all year round and front yards are still covered in thirsty Kentucky bluegrass. One of the very first master plan communities in Las Vegas is a place called Desert Shores. There's more for you at Desert Shores, Desert Shores Apartments, with free membership in the beach club, sandy beach, swimming lagoon, boating, even fishing, a lifestyle that's like a long vacation. Desert Shores Apartments, where there's more for you, more fun, more beauty, more everything. In Desert Shores, the streets are named Summer Lake Drive, Dolphin Bay, Sunset Cove, there are four human-made lakes, which cover about 60 acres filled with Colorado River water. And each home came with a green lawn. Desert Shores was built at a time when Nevada's cup runneth over. Just a few years prior, in 1983, water ran down the spillways of Hoover Dam because there was too much water in Lake Mead. When Desert Shores was built, fewer than 700,000 people lived in Clark County, where Las Vegas is. That number is now close to 2.3 million. My name is Jean Zai. I'm a Chicago transplant to Las Vegas. Jean lives in Desert Shores. She's in a bright pink tank top, standing in the shade of the tree in her front yard as she drinks a bottle of water. In 2015, I moved to this beautiful house. I saved money for many, many, many years to be able to come and live here. And uh, I've loved it here ever since. The homes on Jean's quiet Desert Shores Street have Spanish-style roof tiles, and each front yard is a little different. Some are rocks and desert plants. Others are bright green, fake with plastic artificial turf. These homeowners have gone along with the city's push to use less water. But Jean's front yard stands out, defiant with grass. Growing up in Chicago, everybody had a lawn. One of my prized possessions when I bought this house is my lawnmower. It's that pride of ownership. When I look at this house and it has the lawn, it means home to me. But Jean moved to Las Vegas 15 years into the mega drought. And by then, the state had already put a target on grass lawns. It was against the law for new homes to have grass in the front yard. And Jean could get paid with the Cash for Grass program to replace her lawn with rocks, artificial turf, and desert plants. There's got to be something more to it than take out your grass. And it's ugly, quite frankly. I mean, cactuses are not cute. That's why they're in the desert. Setting aside whether cactuses are cute, it's true that keeping grass alive in the Mojave Desert is one of Nevada's biggest Colorado River problems, and every drop is needed to keep up with population growth. On top of that, Nevada's already very small Colorado River budget is getting cut, so Las Vegas has had to rein itself in. That's why this area is ahead of most others in the Southwest when it comes to water conservation. So today, grass is now totally banned at new homes. And places, like Desert Shores where Jean lives, are now required by law to spend millions of dollars 
to tear out a bunch of grass that's already been planted. For decades, Nevada has paid people and businesses to voluntarily rip out thirsty grass. Now, are you ready? Big Elvis reads a new Nevada law. It says, The waters of the Colorado River, distributed by the Southern Nevada Water Authority, and one of the members agents that by 2027, you can't use Colorado River water to keep decorative grass alive in Nevada. The law applies to grass that's just there for looks, like alongside streets and medians and parking lots. Thank you very much. Thank you, Big Elvis. Let's go back to Jean. The grass in front of Jean's house is safe under this law, but the grass around Jean's community, planted in the 1980s when Desert Shores was first built, has to go. They're tearing out grass all over the all over the neighborhood. If you take just a few left turns out of your neighborhood right now, you can see that they've already started the work, the process. When you see them killing the grass, taking the grass out, replacing it with rocks and plants, Tell us about the moment when you first saw them doing that work. You know how when people are protesting, they'll just like lay in the street? I wanted to do that. I, I wanted to just lay on the grass just one more time at least. And I, want, I, wanted it. I wanted to go over there and just kick their shovels out of their hands. And you know, I'm more civilized than that. And of course they'll make it look, quote, nice, but it's not grass. And it's definitely already looking way different than it did when I chose to move here. It's looking way different, even from one day to the next, right before my eyes. Just a few streets away from Jean's house, a landscaping crew is dumping a truckload of rocks on a patch of dirt. Curtis Hyde is a manager with Par 3 Landscaping. He hops out of his truck to talk to me. He's wearing sunglasses and a pair of bright blue sneakers that almost match his blue shirt. So three weeks ago, that was all beautiful grass, and now it's, uh, we've turned off the water, and it's all brown. And the area we're walking now was grass, and now it's all beautifully landscaped with, with plant material and um, rock mulch cover instead of grass. Curtis knows all these plants by name. He studied botany in college. He uses that knowledge for his landscaping career here in Nevada, where he grew up. So you've been in landscaping for 30 years. I have, yeah. And if you count back when I was mowing lawns when I was eight, it was probably more like 45. (laughs) Desert Shores was new 30 years ago, when grass was the norm and it was everywhere. Do you ever think about how much grass you've removed and how much water that might be saving the city? Yeah, I mean, I know our company has removed over 500 acres of turf. And so if each square foot takes 10 feet of water to grow grass, you're talking huge amounts of water. And if Vegas can do it in a very harsh and dry climate of the Mojave Desert, you can certainly do it in the Rockies and in the Great Basin areas. This is exactly what I was hoping to talk to you about because you are, this is your job. You are here right now pulling up grass, killing grass, and replacing it with gravel and and desert plants and trees and some artificial turf. How does that make you feel? The West is a popular place to move to and live and and 
we have a growing population with a resource that's either shrinking or at very best, you know, remaining static. And so I would encourage people to come and visit Las Vegas and just kind of pick our brains, talk to landscapers, talk to the people who manage the water here, say, how have you done it? Other cities might follow Las Vegas's lead. For the first time ever, 30 water agencies, which supply water from Denver to San Diego, have committed to removing 30% of non-functional grass. The agreement doesn't include anything binding, and it doesn't go as far as Nevada does. Nevada is still the only state that has banned watering non-functional grass lawns with Colorado River water. Still, some cities across the Colorado River Basin are realizing that they can do more to save water at a time when every drop counts. But Vegas's experience shows the longer they wait, the more expensive it'll be if they do eventually decide to outlaw lawns. Since the 1990s, when Nevada first started its Cash for Grass program, the Water Authority has paid people and businesses close to $300 million to rip out grass. Southern Nevada also restricts when and how grass that's left can be watered, and they educate homeowners on the rules. And Vegas is a city that knows entertainment, so the PSAs don't disappoint. Reality check! Vegas is enforcing waterways big time. No watering on Sundays or between 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. You could walk by 10 homeowners and ask them if you can water on Sunday, and they'd all say, oh, no, you'll get a, you'll get a letter in the mail. Desert Shores hired Curtis to rip out decorative grass. That'll cost the community more than $4 million. And every homeowner here, including Gene, will likely have to pay $1,600 to help cover the cost. There's certainly been some animated board meetings and, and some people that have been very frustrated. Curtis went to a Desert Shores town hall in July 2022. It was about the grass removal project. People were yelling out, and, why do we have to do this or that or the other? Uh, can you just quiet down for a moment? This, this town hall is for all of the homeowners, everybody that's here. That HOA person is pleading with people to keep down the ruckus, but they won't back down about the disappearing grass. Turns out, Gene was one of the ruckus causers. There were so many people booing and hissing and yelling things out that I felt absolutely comfortable saying my piece. I do think that we could all in society do more to reduce waste, but telling me to take out my grass is not the answer. Look, this whole time we're talking about water in Las Vegas. And you might be thinking, suburban grass? What about the famous downtown Las Vegas Strip? The casinos, the pools, and fake Venetian Canal. The frickin' Bellagio Fountain. You know, that famous scene from Ocean's Eleven. That's the best part. I save the best for last. 
I just got done checking in to the Excalibur. It's the giant castle-shaped hotel on the Las Vegas Strip. And I'm walking through the casino, and right now there are so many things that are trying to grab my attention with the lights and sounds of the slot machines. But what I'm really excited to see is my hotel bathroom. I'm about to turn on the faucet. Here's the shower. And I'm flushing the toilet. All of this water is going back to Lake Mead. Any water that hits a drain, the faucet, the bathtub, the shower, the toilet, it all gets treated and sent back to the reservoir. And here on the Strip, all of the water going down the drains of these giant luxury hotels gets treated and returned to Lake Mead. So does all the water in all the homes and businesses in all of Southern Nevada. This is huge for their conservation efforts because every gallon of water the state can put back in the reservoir, they get one gallon credited back to them. When that happens, it's like Nevada didn't use any of that water at all. Recycling water allows the state to stretch its small Colorado River budget. That water that goes to lawns, it just evaporates. The Strip is pretty busy right now, more crowded than I remember it being when I came here as a kid. The sun is still up, but people are already in party mode. One guy takes a long sip from a frozen margarita that hangs around his neck. I get stuck in a throng that's gathered around someone dressed as Mickey Mouse. A showgirl winks at me, calls me sexy, and asks if I'd like to take a photo. For a tip, of course. But I'm not focused on any of that. Instead, I'm staring at the ground. Before every casino is a stretch of lush green grass. But it's like everything else on the Strip. The fake Elvises, the fake Venetian Canal, the fake boobs. This grass is fake, plastic astroturf. There's pretty much no real grass left on the Strip. And the hotels use only about 7% of the state's Colorado River budget. But the Strip isn't totally free of fault. The second biggest use of water in the state are the giant evaporative air conditioning systems that the hotels use in the blistering desert heat. But starting this summer, Southern Nevada has banned evaporative cooling for new commercial and industrial buildings. But what about those big fountains, like the giant, iconic fountain outside of the Bellagio Hotel? Dozens of tall shoots of water are dancing to the song My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion. There are hundreds of people on the Las Vegas Strip who have stopped to watch the performance. As the song picks up, the water blasts hundreds of feet into the sky. The force is so powerful, it sounds like a cannon. So how does something like this exist in the desert? 
In the shadows behind the fountain, Victoria Rios pushes open a large, heavy door. She has short, spiky hair and wears thin glasses. A large set of keys jangle loudly on her belt as she says something into her walkie-talkie. She's the facilities manager at the Bellagio Fountain. I've been at Bellagio since construction, and I've been at the company for 33 years. Okay, so you've been with the company since construction, so you actually got to witness the fountain being built. I did, I did. The door opens into the back hallways of the hotel, fluorescent and linoleum and narrow. I follow Victoria through a series of labyrinth turns. I stay close because if I get separated, I don't have a hope of retracing my steps. I'm starting to think we might be lost, but then the hallway opens into a concrete industrial space with tall ceilings and a strong smell of chlorine. You will soon see as we come around the corner um, why we call it the Bat Cave, because we have our boat dock. And um, when you we come and go from our lake, it's a little hidden when you're looking at Bellagio. There's a winged Batman logo painted on the tall cement walls. This place does feel like a hidden underground layer, complete with a boat dock. There's a few guys in scuba suits getting their small maintenance barge ready to head out onto the fountain. All right, come on board. We can, we can go on board? Yes. Oh my gosh. Now walk the plank. Okay, walk in the plank. Thank you for the assist. And then we go this way. The boat's engine turns on. Wait, are we actually going out on the lake? Oh my gosh! If you can't tell, I'm kind of losing it with excitement. Okay, so we are on a barge and we are now floating out onto the waters of the Bellagio Fountain. I remember when the Bellagio Fountain was being built. Las Vegas was my family's thing. We'd vacation here every couple of years. My siblings and I would hit the amusement park at Circus Circus, and my parents would do a little gambling, but they'd mostly hang out with us and have fun. The six of us would pack into our Suburban and make the 11-hour drive from Denver. It was 1998, I was eight years old, when I first watched The Fountain dance to this very same Celine Dion song. I was absolutely captivated. With each visit afterwards, I'd always look forward to the cool mist of the fountain hitting my hot, sweaty face after walking around the desert all day. So taking a boat out on the water was a pretty amazing moment for me. The crew tests a few of the fountain's high-powered shooters. Before this was the Bellagio Hotel, there was actually a golf course here. So when I look at all this water, I might think it comes from the Colorado River. But what's the truth there? Um, it's coming from the well that is here that the golf course was built on. Did you catch that? The Bellagio Fountain does not use Colorado River water. 
It uses well water pulled from an aquifer that's under the Las Vegas Strip. Actually, many of the famous fountains on the Strip pull from the same underground water source. This is one part of the Las Vegas fantasy that doesn't rely on the Colorado River. Guillermo Flores is one of the scuba divers on the barge. I only recently learned that the Bellagio doesn't use Colorado River water. Do you ever hear that from people wondering what, where the water comes from for this fountain? I do make them aware that we use less water than, say, a golf course. Uh, yes, water does. We do throw it up in the air and it does evaporate, but we're constantly recycling the water. It's just like, a, like your own water for your own pool. This is uh, water from a well. We treat it, it's refurbished and put right back in. We float back to the boat dock in the back cave. And all that background noise you're hearing is the hum of the on-site water recycling and treatment system. This water is too salty to drink. And now, all new fountains are banned in Southern Nevada. So, the Bellagio Fountain is not taking away from Nevada's Colorado River supply. It's not the problem. It's hard for homeowner Gene Zai to believe, but thirsty Midwest-style lawns are a much bigger problem for many cities in the West. Las Vegas itself is a gamble, a city in the driest desert in the country. But as Big Elvis puts it, There's a lot of bets and gambles going on here, but the house this time is saying, okay, we have to win this one. We have to win the gamble with water. And you know what? The house is doing what the house has always done. They're trying to win and they're going to win this. Big Elvis is proud of what Las Vegas has done. The Vegas residents are uniting and saying, hey, we'll go along with this. We need water here. We need, this is our city. And this is the city not just for us, but for the world to come and enjoy. So we're doing everything possible, most definitely. Las Vegas is a fantasy built on Colorado River water. But remember, that's also true for Denver, Los Angeles, Phoenix, just to name a few cities who also use the river for big pools and to grow tropical yard plants with green, lush lawns. But out of all of them, it's Las Vegas who has broken this illusion. They've been forced to confront reality and take the hard and painful steps to embrace the desert a little more, to adapt their city to a west with less water. That means change. It means this desert oasis is less lush as big fountains, pools, and grass become relics of the past. This place looks different now, but like Big Elvis says, those changes mean Las Vegas is here to stay. Parts to the CPR's podcast about the Colorado River with host Michael Elizabeth Sackis. Find this and all the episodes wherever you get your podcast and at CPR.org. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Before we go, we've chosen the next book for our author event, Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden by Camille T. Dungy. She's a distinguished professor at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and she is indeed a parent and a plant mom.
There are so many similarities between raising a child and raising plants. One of them that strikes me that I write about in Soil directly is the fact that plants come in these tiny little packages. They just, they're seeds or seedlings that can fit in the palm of your hand. And then I have to remember when I put them in the soil that they could grow to be six feet tall and and as wide. And I have to give them the space and the support that they need to grow into their full possibilities. And of course, my own daughter, I could once hold in my hand and now she's almost taller than I am. And I have to always be able to give her the support and the space that she needs to truly grow the way she needs to. This is a book about gardens and family and justice. Pick up a copy of Soil by Camille T. Dungy. Then join us at the Denver Botanic Gardens on June 29th. Tickets are free but limited. To get yours, head over to CPR.org slash turn the page. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.